Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. If you know me, you know how obsessed I am with live performance. To me, nothing replaces being in a theater and the lights going down and the orchestra starts to play and that first moment of magic. And I know the way I feel about theater. Some people feel about sports or opera or dance or comedy or food. And what if there was a place that you could go and find out which live events are going on near you, and then for a discount price, you can get off your couch, put down that clicker, and experience the magic that is live performance? Well, there is a place, goldstar.com. You just go to that website, you type in your city, and every amazing live event will be listed at discount prices. Theater, dance, comedy, film, food, concerts, sports. No more staying home. You are going to go out and build memories and experiences that expand your mind and heart through live performance with GoldStar.com. GoldStar is in 26 cities around the country. So go to GoldStar.com. Get out of your house and build memories that are magic for you and your family. Expand your mind. Expand your hearts. Go see live performance by using goldstar.com. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be A-OK. everyone. New episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday, and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact, when I asked my guest today if he felt successful, he said that he did. He said he is very aware that very few people get to do what he does. And he also told me that when he was 19, he had cancer. And when you get through something as life-altering as that, you spend your days focused, determined, and ambitious. Welcome comedian, storyteller, Mike Berbiglia to the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. Hey everyone, my guest today is the comedian, actor, author, and filmmaker, Mike Berbiglia. Mike is currently starring on Broadway in The New One, a solo show that he wrote and performs in. He also does his comedy shows all over the world. His most recent shows, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend and Thank God for Jokes, were both filmed live for Netflix. He wrote, directed, and starred in the film Sleepwalk With Me and Don't Think Twice. His book, Sleepwalk With Me and Other Painfully True Stories, was a New York Times bestseller. 
As an actor, Mike has appeared on Inside Amy Schumer, Girls, Broad City, Orange is the New Black, and Billions. On film, he appears in Trainwreck, The Fault in Our Stars, and Pop Star. He was honored with the Kurt Vonnegut Award for Humor. I am beyond honored to welcome Mike Birbiglia to my podcast. It's a surreal uh, It's a surreal thing because I, I listened to the Michael Ian Black episode of your show on yeah. the way on the subway here, and then I rolled straight into talking to you. So yeah. it was like a, a leap into reality from Michael. surreality. I love him so much. But that was a tremendous interview. That maybe I've been a fan and friend of his for a while, yeah. and uh, that's my favorite interview I've heard of him. We're done. <laughs> uh, you broke down his multiple defenses, well, which he has many of. Yeah, um, he's very so self-deprecating to a point of, you were pointing out in the interview, that's not even self-deprecation. That's just uh, sort of like uh, inaccurately uh, depicting uh, what your His career reality. is. Yeah, exactly. He's so self-deprecating. It is exhausting. It's exhausting and you broke it. I would be remiss Mm -hmm. if I did not begin this conversation telling you that I just saw the new one, which is your solo show that you wrote and perform in on Broadway. Right around the corner. Yeah. Well, that's why I have my booth here. I want you to go (laughs) here, then take a little rest on the equity cot. That's right. Do your vocal (laughs) warm-ups. Equity cot. Yeah. (laughs) That's really inside. That's so inside Amy Schumer, what I just said. It is inside Amy Schumer, yeah. That's where the equity cot is. Yeah. (laughs) It's inside Amy Schumer. Amy Schumer, I think, is coming to the show tonight, actually. Wow. I hope she doesn't have her baby during the show. I know. That would be so meta, wouldn't it? Like a show all about what it is to have a baby, and then someone has a baby in the audience. I think that's the best case scenario for the show. Yeah. I think that that would be, it would peak. I couldn't perform it anymore. That would be peak the new one. Right. (laughs) That's right. Because we have created some pregnancies. Supposed, During the show? Supposedly. Post-show. People are like, so you I've, know what? If Mike did it. For, oh, I've been performing the show for two years on the road and um, developing it. And uh, so I get a lot of emails and things. My last show, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, was about how I got married despite not believing in the idea of marriage. And that created a lot of marriages. And then this one is about how I never want to have a kid. Have a kid. And then I have a kid. And, and that's created a lot of people at least saying to me, you know, at the stage door and things, they got pregnant after uh, seeing the show. I don't know if it's true. They they do say that. Maybe they're just trying to strike up a conversation. Does that make you feel powerful? No. But it does make me feel like I'm on the right track uh, in terms of how personal I'm going and the intention of going personal. Yeah. Which is if I go personal, the audience will go personal in their lives and sort of have open discussions of things that are very uncomfortable. Which is what good comedy is. Discussing things that are, right? Yeah, or at least the genre I'm in. So I want to talk about that. So the new one is a one-man show, as I just said to my listeners, and you concur that that is what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's a solo play. Some people call it solo play. Some people call it, some people refuse to call it that. Stand-up comedy. Some people go, it's a monologue. It's art. It's storytelling, but it's not a a play. I don't know. Like, I don't care. Like, it literally doesn't matter. My director and I talk about that all the time because it's a common question. We don't care. Like, we don't care what you call it. All we care about is what the experience is. Well, it's interesting because you are a fabulously riveting 
hilarious, poignant, mind-bending storyteller. That was my experience of you. I'd never seen you live before. So that was such a lucky thing to get to see you in person. Now I'm seeing you really live right now. The show is about a man who sort of felt like, as you said, I really don't see a reason for me, you weren't judging others, to have a child. And sort of your journey around it. And the thing that is so incredible, first of all, I feel like my mother right now, I'm an actress. I've had to learn many lines in my life. But the idea that you stood there effortlessly, seemingly effortlessly, telling us a story, and we're also able to kind of engage in the moment, like the street had been closed down, and you talked about that, and sort of be also in both places at once. Is it hard for you to memorize things? Yeah, but because I'm right, in this case, because I'm like when I'm on Billions or Orange is the New Black, I find it very difficult. You write your like lines on your hand and you (laughs) peek. Well, what I do is I basically try to replicate my writing process. When I'm on those shows, I will write out the lines as though I wrote them. Or I should say, my character wrote them. Mm-hmm. Um, until, and, I, and repeat them and repeat them and repeat them until I know them. But um, yeah, in this case, I spend so much time laboring over the words right. that I don't have to memorize them because I've, I've spent hours and days and months and years on them. Have you ever gone up? Or not known where you were when you perform? Yeah. Early on, more so. Like Sleepwalk With Me, which was about 10 years ago, which Nathan Lane generously presented at the Bleecker Street Theater downtown. I want to ask you, why did Nathan Lane? Why did he? Yeah, like how do you know Nathan Lane? He had 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 my um, Secret Public Journal live comedy album, and because of that, in 2008, I was at Caroline's, and he was in David Mamet's November down the street. Right. And someone as a as a gift knew that he liked my comedy, and so they got him tickets to the show. And he came to the show, and I was performing as stand-up, the Sleepwalk With Me show. Okay. And it was just a fluke because it was, you know, a very theatrical show, show that would become a show. And he's he was... Uh, he sent me a very nice note and a bottle of champagne the next night, and I was, I was just in shock. I've, I'd been a Nathan Lane fan for since I was in high school, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I sent him a note to his stage door, and then uh, and then we met up. Uh, Jen and I, my wife and I, went to his play November, which we loved, and then we went to dinner with him afterwards, and. It was just like one of those friendships where you meet someone and it's like, oh, we've known each other our whole lives. Mm-hmm. It just felt like that. And then uh, and then, sort of several months later, we went to City Hall and we asked him to be the witness at our wedding at City Hall. And then a few years after that, he asked, um, he and his husband Devlin asked me and Jen to be their witnesses at City Hall. And so, That's incredible. Yeah, so that was sort of how it happened. It was, yeah. And it was this very... Strange thing where I I told him about that sleepwalk with me, that what he had seen was part of an actual one-person show that I was hoping to mount off-Broadway. And and he basically said, well, you know, I could put my name on it. I could present it like Meryl Streep did with Bridge and Tunnel, which was at the same theater, Laker Street. And I said, well, that would be incredible. And what was interesting, little-known facts... Thank he you never, for that he never brand tie-in. Plug, plugging it. <laughs> By plug. the way, that's the new intro to every show yeah, yeah, from yeah. now on. But anyway, Little go on. In fact, um, 
Never, uh, there's no paperwork for him presenting the show. You know, no, there was no money exchanged hand. He, it was just a, sort of a, a gift. It was like, here, take my name. Just, you know, whatever you want to do. That's really incredible. It really changed my life. Like meeting Nathan, like really changed. Like, two things happened that year. Three things happened that year that changed my life. One is I got married at City Hall. The other is I met Nathan Lane and he presented presented my show. And the third was I met Ira Glass and he put me on This American Life. So those three things entirely changed the trajectory right. of my life. And what year was that? Career. 2008, 10 years ago. Well, happy anniversary. Thanks. That's exciting. Isn't that wild? Yeah, that's incredible. In a decade. Ira Glass uh, is a very well-known uh, producer and personality in in the world of radio yeah. and other places. So you did not, because now if you Google your name, there's a million Ira Glass and Mike Birbiglia connections things. and things yeah, yeah. We've and done projects a lot of things together. together. Yeah, he's a producer on the new one. Yeah. And uh, he's produced both of my independent films. It's funny because both those gentlemen, Nathan and Ira, by reputation, and obviously that's very different than what someone is really like sure. in real life, are um, are intimidating people to yeah. the the rest of us civilians. And not easy to get to know or get to or have a persona that's kind of I more that, reserved. I think that's, that's fair. So Ira uh, came to see a show. And it's hard for me to take that in because they're, yeah. I, I know them as yeah, warm Yeah, they're family friends. now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, they're not warm people at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're, you're right. I think a very that, different I think experience perhaps their reputation them. is that, yeah. Right. That could be. So how, or just that there's some people who walk around with their hearts on their sleeves and give you all of themselves sure. on stage and off stage and other people like, I think you a know, lot of people come at those people. Yeah. Those and, two people. Yeah. But understandably, you're allowed to keep who you are for yourself private. Sure. And, and so this is with zero judgment. But um, first of all, that's just kind of amazing that they both were so attracted to you and your work and what you were putting out in the world. How did Iris see your work? Ira saw it through Catherine Burns, who's the artistic director of The Moth, right? Uh, story storytelling series and podcast radio show. Um, I'd been involved with them. They they I had told my first story ever in 2003 with The Moth. And was that like you called up and left your story in a message, or were you at an event they had where asked, you could... they had asked me to do uh, an event at a comedy festival where they were doing shows and I was doing shows? Okay. And they said, and they, it was like. They pulled in like Janine Garofalo and Louis Black and myself and a bunch of yeah. other people. So like, so then I worked with Catherine Burns and she, she, she coached me through telling a story that would later become the titular story of my girlfriend's boyfriend about having a high school girlfriend who didn't told me not to tell anyone that she was my girlfriend. <laughs> it's such an embarrassing. Even saying it out loud is like still a really embarrassing story. And uh, she coached me through that. And then years later, I thought. I feel like a good fit would be this American life. Like, I feel like that's where I'm sort of meant to be. Yeah. And so I, I asked, if, I think, of quite a few times. Catherine Burns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I asked Catherine quite a few times. Can I be on? No, can, I, can you put me in touch with, with this American life? And then, I, and then I was put in touch with Julie Snyder, who's senior producer there. And, uh, she, and sort of like months and months after they got the audio for Sleepwalk With Me, uh, which is like a 13-minute version of Sleepwalk With Me, they said, maybe this might be on the show. And then mm-hmm. apparently I found out later, like it was on the board for months and months. And wow. As like a possible, and then it ended up on there. And yeah, it's it's it's, it's When you strange. say 
because the moth for so many of us was like our entree to listening to stories on sure. the radio. Yeah, like great. our parents did it all the time. And then we started watching TV and going to movies. And then suddenly we were called back to this incredible, intimate, audible experience. Yeah. When you say she kind of coached you through it, I'm just curious, what does that mean? Are there like pointers or or kind of ways, things you need to hit when you're doing a moth story Well, or a story they, for the moth? What, what what Catherine was doing was what in my my director, Seth Barish, and I would describe as dramaturgy, okay. which is uh, if you think of a, a moth story as a 10-minute play, let's say, she's the dramaturg for the 10-minute play. Mm-hmm. And so... So she helps you shape it and structure yeah, so you, it in a way. You, you have a rough story. Right. And, you know, she she's teaching. Essentially, I mean, it, it just sounds so simple. It's like, teach, you know, talking through, like, why is this the beginning? Why is this the end? Why is, you know, what's the logic of how it how it pulls through? Right. So... Or pull, pulls the audience through. Yeah. You're such a um, wonderful storyteller and and clearly in no small part because you're a wonderful writer. I mean, some people can improvise really well and you seem to be able to do all the things. Um, when did you find like, oh, I have this voice. I have this ability to make people laugh. Like, were you the comedian in your family? Were you always aware that like, I can make people laugh? I was the youngest of four. Mm-hmm. In Massachusetts? Yeah, in, in central Massachusetts. Not, uh, I'm being very concise about that. because yeah. we don't want people to really know. We don't want people... Well, no, no, no. your house. No, no, I don't want people to think I'm from Boston. <laughs> oh, it's is a, that a thing? Well, Boston's like fancier. Oh, uh, okay. Central Mass is like... You want your street cred yeah, to stay. Yeah, it's like yeah. I, I grew up in the movie Beautiful Girls, you know, like the, of, of any movie that I've seen that, that captures... That captures Yeah, it. yeah, it's okay. sort of like... The rough and tumble. Sort of blue-collar suburb in Massachusetts. That's where yeah. I grew up. Okay. And, and yeah, I feel like when people talk about Massachusetts, they're usually thinking like, oh, fancy Massachusetts. But you it's did just, not grow up in a fancy no, it wasn't family? Fancy. It wasn't fancy Massachusetts. Okay. My dad was a doctor. That's fancy. In a, right, but in a town where like everybody, everybody, all my friends' parents were like cops and teachers and Was that con- weird that your father military was service. a doctor and not a blue-collar worker? Did you want to hide that? I was just talking about that with my parents the other day because they were here for Christmas. They saw the show the other day, which is really they the first did. time they'd ever seen it. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. But I, yeah, no, I talked to my parents about that the other day. Is, is it was yeah? It's an odd thing when you're when you're growing up in a town where, where, yeah, you're what the norm is. Yeah, and what, you're not the norm. Yeah, what everybody's thing is is. Yeah, you're not the yeah you're not the norm. Yeah, it's a little bit. It's Were a little there bit tracks out of the like who lived on which side of the tracks in your town? Was it's so there funny. Like... It's funny you should say that. When I saw Lady Bird, we didn't have that formally. I can't. I mean, sure in Shrewsbury, like I think yeah there there was I think there was a part of town that I'm thinking of that if someone lived over there, you'd go like, huh? How did they end up living there? Like that. That's. Huh, you know, like, <laughs> like in a good way or a no, bad way? No, no, in a bad Things way. Things went very wrong. No, no, in a bad way. Like you're like, no, like that. That's sort of like, wait, people live there. Ah, uh, okay. Like that kind of thing. Okay. Like that. There are houses over there. Mm, that kind of yeah. thing. And I, and when I saw the movie Lady Bird, I that that moment where they talk about the wrong side of the tracks, or she goes to the friend's house yeah. and pretends that 
it's that's her house yeah it i just cried so Mm. much there's a few movies that make me cry so much and one of them was lady bird and it was the wrong side of the tracks discussion and the other one is a very massachusetts movie which is spotlight i couldn't stop crying we were watching a it at home jet my wife and i and I had to stop the movie because I was crying. I had cried for 15 minutes in the middle of the movie. Did you grow up in a Catholic family? Yeah, yeah, I was an altar boy. And I and I wasn't abused, but I had survivor guilt hmm. when I saw that movie that was so intense that I had to shut the movie off and then and sort of gather myself. Old enough to be aware when the story broke no. in the paper that right. I mean, I guess you're <sighs> That was in the 80s. Set when did that when when did the globe oh, good, kind of run it? I don't remember of when, of when it ran exactly. No, I think it was in the nineties, okay. but I'm not sure. Like but it just I, I wasn't feel on like your it, radar. I feel, yeah, I feel like it was maybe when I was in college, but but um, late. I was in the college in, in the late nineties. I think that's around when it was. But where did you go to school? I went to a bunch of schools. I went to Shrewsbury Middle School, Shrewsbury High School, St. John's High School, all all boys Catholic. And then St. Mark's High School. So I went to like a series of different schools. And did you go to college in Boston also? No, I went to Georgetown in D.C. Okay. You got out. Yeah, that and that was a big goal. <laughs> I really wanted to get out. So to answer my, to my question. I was talking to my parents about that. We're going to have your parents here in a minute. No, I know. They would be exciting to have on. They would not. To hear their perspective. Well, I know from my reading and spending time with yeah. you on my computer that they would prefer us not to mention them at all or anything about your family. My, or dad, really. doesn't want, my dad doesn't want any, I know. any autobiographical I know. So we're going to move on from them because that is their right. Okay. That is their fair. right. Yeah, yeah. But you were saying that you were the youngest, and I was asking, like, did oh, you entertain did, everybody? Yeah, yeah, I think I sort of did, yeah. And I think that that's a common trait in the youngest of a big family mm-hmm. is, like, you want, you want to get people's attention. Um, there's a part... In my in my book, Sleepwalk with Me, where I say the first time I remember getting a laugh was when I was shitting in the backyard of my house, and it became, it seemed logical, you know, sort of like, oh, shit, oh, shit, you know, I have to poop, and there's I'm here, and the dog go dogs inside. poop, the dogs poop outside, our dog poops. I think I was about five or so, mm-hmm. and then, uh, and then it everyone started laughing, and then it became a story in the neighborhood, and then I. And I feel like that's sort of a metaphor for my whole career. It's like, you know, you make mistakes. <laughs> and people laugh. You make mistakes and big people laugh. And then you go, oh, let's do that again. Well, you are now a guy who, I don't know how you define success, but to me, as someone who lives a life as an arts lover, you get to perform what you wrote in front of people get paid for it mm-hmm. and feel appreciated. Some mm-hmm. people even get married or have children mm-hmm. because of these shows. It probably <laughs> didn't start out like day one that this was the case. Yeah. So I really, really want to know like how this career grew and how did you, did you think you were going to be an actor? Did you think you were going to be a comedian, a writer? Like what did you think when you went to college you were going to do? I, when I went to college, I thought I was going to be... I had seen Stephen Wright live at the uh, Cape Cod Melody tent when I was 16. My brother Joe took me. And the moment I saw him, I thought, this is what I'm going to do. Wow. I, I had that, that epiphany moment 
where I was, it's kind of what you were describing, like you're, you're laughing so hard, your cheeks hurt, your body hurts, your face hurts, your, your muscles hurt, like everything is hurting. And I just thought, oh, I think I can do that, which is a great, the great sleight of hand of, of great comedy, I think, is the person is so good that you think you can do it too. Right. At 16. Yeah, at 16. Yeah. And so I went home and I just started writing jokes in a notebook. And they're all just like Stephen Wright's like kind of surreal observations. And they were terrible. And the, but and but then a couple, you know, a couple years later, I went to college. I went to Georgetown. I try. I applied to Harvard. I tried to go to be in the Lampoon because that's the only. So you were a great writing. student. If you applied to Harvard, you had good scores and good grades. Yeah, I don't think they gave any serious consideration to me though. But you were aware what the yeah, criteria was. Yeah, I was a good student. You threw your hat in a ring, I threw not my hat feeling in a ring. like a crazy person, like yeah, 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 or I slightly thought... a crazy person. Yeah, yeah. But okay. I, <laughs> I had the delusion of thinking they'd want me as a comedy writer. <laughs> You're like, look at my application. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's hilarious. No, at the, and I swear to God, is that the, what your I, essay was in, about? In my interview. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I had all these like comedy writing satire <laughs> es- issues of the newspaper that I was the mm. editor in chief of, and from uh, high school. Yeah, yeah. All your high schools. Well, All yeah, yeah, but, mo- but primi- yeah, but primarily St. Mark's, which is where I was for three years. But no, I I went to the. This is how delusion I was in high school about comedy, and maybe now in 2018 someone could do this, and that there would be some logic to it because comedy's popular now. But yeah. that fact, pop- comedy wasn't popular then. I mean, it was popular, but it wasn't like it wasn't mass media like pop culture. Mm-hmm. Now well, it's like no YouTube. I mean, it just no wasn't, people now. Yeah. They go like, oh, I might maybe I'll be a comedian. People go, oh yeah, maybe. Yeah, there's money in that. And that, right now it's and back then it's like I'm going to be a comedian. It's like no, you're not. Like no one thought <laughs> you could people, be a comedian. Five people are. Yeah. Yeah. No one thought. And so I went to the interview for Harvard Lampoon. And I was like, I pulled out all of these satire issues of the newspaper and all this comedy writing, which is probably pretty good for a high school student. I don't know. It's probably it was probably all right. And then, uh, and I was like, "This is what I want to do," and I want to write for the Lampoon. And and the woman who was a lawyer said, uh, "said Is there any other reason you want to go to Harvard?" And I said, "No." And that was the end of the. Guess interview. who didn't go to Harvard? <laughs> <laughs> At but, Georgetown, however, they were like, "That sounds great." But then we the, have plenty but of the, lawyers but here. The, Lam- the Lampoon. Uh, inducted me as an honorary member. Isn't that the best? Yeah, it was cool. Not the best without having to do any of that work Super there. Cool. You could just go. It was in Boston. You did have it to was go in to Boston Cambridge. For yeah, that. yeah, yeah. You know, I was talking to Jack, who you met when you first came in, yeah. who's engineering this session for yep. us, who's a big fan of yours, as is anyone I've talked to, because I can't stop talking about you since I saw your show. I feel like many of my friends who grew up wanting to do comedy or are doing comedy uh, at some point auditioned like SNL. SNL yeah, was, was like a touchstone to for them. For they sure. grew up watching SNL. Yeah. Their parents let them stay up and watch SNL. So is there a part of you going, I'm just going to go to New York and audition for SNL? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Our graduation week of high school, our teaching advisor gave a speech where he said what everyone in my class, which was like 80 people, one by one he said what we were going to be. Right. And he said Mike Birbiglia is going to be on Saturday Night Live. And it, 
it really crushed this other guy who was in my class who was an impressionist. His name was Seth. <laughs> that Seth would be some. Like, that would be some me. kind of story. I'll show him. I'll show oh, him all. Well, good. everyone. I mean, Newton. You know, seven people I know, like Krasinski. And, oh yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. There's Mindy a Kaling, lot, yes, and all those folks. And yeah, so many. B.J. Novak, like there are a lot of funny. But then I made a people. movie about Saturday Night Live, and then uh, and that and that that's and, been sort of a funny. Like, I have a funny sort of tangential relationship with Saturday Night Live because I made this movie. Right. It's sort of in a, it's not about Saturday Night Live. So but you it, never it's, it's auditioned a, don't for think Saturday twice, Night Live. It's sort of has a Saturday Night Live uh, doppelganger right. called Weekend Live. Right. Which is hilarious. Thanks. Did you ever audition for SNL? No. Okay. No, I was, I, what happened was, is I was past my stand-up career in an attempt to become a comedy writer. I had to perform my own writing because there was no one to perform it. Why not? Where were the people? I was at Georgetown. Nobody was performing stand-up comedy. Well, they were, I was in an improv group, but no one wanted to be a solo performer and I had all these observations, right? So it's like, who's going to perform? I guess I am. You know, which is what a lot of stand-up comedians are. And Seth Meyers is that, by the way. Seth Meyers is that. Woody Allen is that. Like, there's a lot of comedy writers who, at a certain point, they were just like, no, 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 you say it like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let then, me do it. Yeah, let just me, move let over. Me, let me do it. And that, yeah. I'm that genre. So that's how it started. So you've kind of answered my question. You did go to Georgetown, and you joined an improv group. Yeah, I I auditioned for the improv group because they didn't have a sketch comedy group Mm -hmm. because I was trying to write sketch comedy. And so then I was in in the improv group because that's what was there. And I was actually cast by my friend Chris Fosdick, who's not in show business, but is still a good friend. And James Murray was the assistant director who who now is the star of Impractical Jokers Mm -hmm. um, on True TV, which is a great show. And, And then I went on, after he left, I went on to to um, cast Nick Kroll. And and then he he was in my group. And then after I graduated a year later, he cast John Mulaney. I was going to ask sort of so who the beginning, this... how your community got started so or like who the first run. people. Yeah, the first one, the first ones were James Murray and Chris Fazek. And then when you finished at Georgetown, did you come to New York? Yeah, I mean, it, basically it was going to, it came down to, do I go to Chicago to do improv or do right. I go to New York to do stand up? Because to me, those were the hubs of the places right. that I was interested in. And New York was where my sister Gina lived, and so I lived on her couch for a little bit. Oh, really? Yeah. And so when you first got here with your... You graduate from college with a degree in... English writing, yeah. And are you like, okay, I'm going to get a job as a teacher, or I'm going to try to be a journalist, and I'll do comedy on the side, or were you full in... Yeah, it was sort of like, you know, I'd been doing, I'd been working the door at the Washington, D.C. Improv Comedy Club. And did you Um, get to go on there? Sometimes, yeah. By the time I graduated, I was like opening for like Brian Regan and Margaret Cho and Kathleen Madigan and a lot of people who I really admire and I learned a lot from. So if I were at one of those shows and had the pleasure of seeing you open for them. At the time, it would not have been a pleasure. (laughs) The in-pleasure. What were you talking about then? What was the beginning of? Well, I I sort of depict it in my movie Sleepwalk With Me where like early versions of my stuff were just like... um, it, observational just like I would hate to be a, a stick insect because if all the other insects are always bumping into you because they don't know you're there and you got to be like watch it and you're like yeah you look like a stick and you're like yeah but I have eyes and they're like yeah they were closed 
And so they were like really silly. Like there's a lot of like really silly stuff like that. But like, do you remember? I know. I mean, you're young, so it's not that long ago. But like, what made you? Where did that come from? That's sort of Stephen Wright in my through my own lens. Like to me, that was Stephen Wright meets a stick. At his <laughs> right. Well, it's just that. Well, or sign somewhere between Stephen Wright and sort of Seinfeld, and like just sort of like yeah, just observing things and picking them apart and becoming, you know, I think observational comedy is like intentionally not seeing the forest from the trees. Mm -hmm. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It's this sort of like, and that's what my personality is. I'm, I get in real life. Yeah. I'm obsessive Uh and my obsessiveness sometimes leads to observations that are irrational, but humorously irrational. So did you, have you been And then at a certain point I, I tipped into, okay, let's have that be about myself. Right. And so that's where how I landed where and I And that's worked great for you. Yeah. So starting even then, were you walking around with like a little pad? Yeah, that yeah. That you just always yeah, writing yeah. stuff down? And Definitely. do you still do that? Yeah. Yeah. Lately I've, been, lately I've been doing it. Well, lately I've been doing it on like my, uh, on my phone on Evernote, mm-hmm. which is just like, an, like an, a notes program. But yeah, I, de- I definitely, I think that's sort of the key. If you're a writer, like if you're listening to this and you're an aspiring writer, I think that's the key to everything. Because it's like, it's like, um, there's, there's these things called mind writing slogans. Like if you write, when I was writing my first book, I was or my first book, when I book, I'm writing another book now. Um, Your second. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> second in training. <laughs> but um, I was writing my book. Elna Baker, who's a producer in This American Life, a great writer, she said, you should put these mind writing slogans up and they're from all different writers and they're just these little quotes and they're really like good. a Pinterest board. Of yeah, like... they really are. They're kind of like, like the one there's like an Ezra pound one. That's like, um, only emotion endures. It's three words, only emotion. endures. And I love, like I had that on my wall for a long time. And, uh, and, and like there's an Allen Ginsberg one that's like, uh, write what is vivid to you. And that's and that's why I think like jotting things in a notebook is crucial, because vividness only occurs really in a moment, mm-hmm. and if you capture it and you write it down, you'll have it later. But if you don't capture it in that moment, later you'll only really have the sort of the fuzzy version of right, it. Right, like not, a, a fuzzy memory. Yeah, it's not vivid. Well, it's right, and it's not of the moment. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think that, that that writing the notes thing is really crucial, which is why I think it's really hard to live with a writer, which is my wife is a poet, so the two of us are Miserable. a real pair. <laughs> <laughs> well, because we're both like writing in our notebooks right. all the time. Talk to and, me. Yeah, yeah, Look exactly. Up. You're little, you have a daughter, right? Yeah, she's, she's three and like, a half. Well, she's probably got her little notebook. Yeah, exactly. She does. Own. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. So when was the first like little bit of sunlight that came into like your comedian cave of oh i might find a bunch of people who like what i do there was honestly it was it was my improv group in college Mm -hmm. because because i was before that i i really didn't connect with my fellow peers at georgetown for whatever reason, it's sort of a conservative school, and mm-hmm. I don't know. It's in just, a conservative place, in a conservative place, and and I don't know. It was sort of very serious, and 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 then I met these really silly goofball like uh, carnival 
type uh, improvisers and and I just thought these guys are great. Like this is my dream come true. That and was, was sort of the happiest I've ever. Was there like a great person leading it who like you're this like, guy Chris Fosick who didn't end up being an improviser? It was funny. I was talking to Mike Mike Myers, uh, the, the great actor and sketch comedian, came to the show the other night, mm-hmm. and he and I were talking about Don't Think Twice because he said that he was like you made this movie that's like about my life. Yeah, <laughs> he's like that's nice. Yeah, it was really nice. And then I I go yeah. It's, I go, did you have this thing where like like this in my group, like there's the Chris Fosdick was the patriarch of the whole thing. And um and he didn't stay in show business. And he was the best. Uh-huh. And he and and Mike Myers just said, Yeah, 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 that we yeah, we had that. There's all these people who are great and for whatever reason they didn't stay in and it's he, he I think Mike Myers described it as like there's a thing that keeps people in it that is intangible and nobody knows why Mm -hmm. they stay in and it's sort of a certain type of madness and it's like and those are the people who stick around and sort of make it and it's 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 a bizarre alchemy that i think almost no one understands in even in show business but how did you you know when you come from a family of doctors and you're interested in I'm going to call it stand-up, but it's so, as we said earlier, like to put a word or a term on what you do is it doesn't really matter, but to perform and make people laugh. You didn't have an in through your family into this business. Like you really came into it completely unattended. Yeah, I I was lucky. Well, I I had two lucky things in my family, which were flukes. They're not um, nepotism, but they were good. They were happy accidents, which is my brother Joe for whatever reason, got into writing satire when he was like a sophomore or junior in high school. Mm -hmm. And I was in like eighth grade or seventh grade. And so I was at that very impressionable age where I was like, well, that's the cool thing to do is to write comedy. And so I started writing comedy. It was like in seventh and eighth grade. So you loved your brother. Yeah. Yeah. And my brother works with me now and he collaborates with me on a lot of projects and produces a lot of stuff that I do. And... So there's that. Mm-hmm. So there's my brother who like just a mentor ran, in that yeah, way. just randomly, randomly like loves comedy as a high school uh, student. And then the other happy accident was that my sister Gina, who's 11 years older than me, was working in television production in Chicago at like some talk, like at Oprah Winfrey and some other talk. Not shows like and Oprah, but at Oprah. Um, yeah, like yeah. But that was one of the places she worked. And then. When she moved to New York, she worked at Lifetime Television, Television for Women. And then, I don't know if it's still called that. Mm. It's still called that? I don't know. And and then... Uh, is there still Lifetime? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> We're going to say yes, yes and yes. Sure, yes, there is. And then, um, and then she ended up being an assistant at HBO in the comedy department. Um, but and, and so she would just go see comedy shows... For free, a lot. And then when I would come to New York, she would take me to comedy shows for free. So when I was like in high school and college, like I would go to the comic strip or I would go to Luna Lounge, which was is now closed, but it was a big scene at the time. That Luna Lounge was the scene that yielded Sarah Silverman and and uh, and Mark Maron and Todd Berry and Louis C.K. and all these all these people who 
went from being sort of underground comedians to being main the underground comedians of the 90s ended up being sort of the mainstream popular comedians of the 2000s so in the 90s my sister sort of inadvertently educated me on what was like a hip scene right um in comedy which none of us knew she didn't know i didn't know none of us knew that that would end up being the pop art form which comedy is now in 2018 right. nobody knew in the 90s and you're learning these it lineups and absorbing were like, it these lineups would be like Zach Galifianakis and Dimitri Martin and you know all these people it's just it though the lineups from that era are wild cuz it really is like it really is like the popular comedy of today so you start performing in New York how did you get a foot in the door to perform on a stage in New York once you left your improv company and now you're here? It was very rigorous. It was, um, I was working the door at the Washington, D.C. Improv, mm -hmm. and the final week before graduating, I was opening for Brian Regan. And Brian Regan's feature act was his brother, the comedian Dennis Regan, who's hilarious as well. And... I told them I was moving to New York. Dennis Regan said, oh, if you're moving to New York, I'll call the club owners and tell them you're coming. That's so awfully he, nice. So he calls three club owners. He calls the Comedy Cellar. He calls Gotham Comedy Club. He calls the Comic Strip. And the one of those that took him up on uh, um, the offer to see me was the Comic Strip. So I performed at the Comic Strip for this in front of this guy named Lucian Hold, who's like, now passed away. Like, do you audition just for yeah. him? Yeah, okay. in, in an audience, Okay, in front of an audience. But that's how you try out. Yep. And he said, he sort of was like, well, you're not ready, but he saw my potential. And then I kept auditioning. And then I think on my like third audition there, which was six months after I moved to New York, he started letting me perform. And then he became my personal manager until he passed away a few years later. Wow. And does he start booking you in places outside of New York? And is that when he, he sort the of touring begins? Yes. Yeah, so he, he sort of helped put me in. He, he did. He helped me put me in touch with a, a, a college booking agent who's named Kate McGill, whose name is Kate McGill. And she started booking me at literally hundreds of colleges across the country, which is how I was able to... A lot of times people say to me like, How'd you do long sets? Like, yeah. I can only do five minutes. Yeah. And I was like, oh, me too. Except I got booked at these colleges and then you'd be in cafeterias or rooms, like multi-purpose rooms where 20 people show up. But you're booked to perform for an hour. And you get to There's no other comedian. Yeah. And so you're just like, well, you have to fill an hour. It's not, but do, that you, is it's so not do you different. get to fill an hour. It's you like, have to. you have to. You're, you're in... You're in River Falls, Wisconsin. Like, there's no other entertainer there. So is that how you go from jokes yeah. to stories? Yeah, I think that that's a lot of it. I would string together joke after joke after joke after joke. And I, at one point, this great, the great, the late great comedian, John Panette, who I opened for a handful of times, he, he, he said, I opened for him once at Caroline's, which was actually around the corner from here and one of the places that put me on stage very first, right after the comic strip. And, and he said, uh, he said, you know, your, your jokes are good, but you gotta, you gotta put it together. Mm -hmm. You know, that was his advice. And he was a storyteller. And, and so that, that was one of the way, one of the times that I, early on, I just started putting, putting long chunks together. And, and, and that's sort of what I do now. 
Except I build it the other way, which is I build from the story and then I I fill the story with jokes uh-huh. so that the audience never, ideally, the audience doesn't lose interest. <laughs> Some person who hates me is listening going, I lost interest. I did. I turned this. <laughs> they're not listening because they turned off 20 minutes ago. Don't worry. So you also had the great coincidence of having a lot of crazy things happen to you. You yeah. had cancer when you were 19 years yeah, old. Yeah. You're in remission. Yep. You sleepwalk yeah. and fall out of windows and hurt yourself. I had that happen once. Right? I jumped through a window. Yeah. Right. You wanted to have a kid. There were a lot of barriers in your way yeah, for having right. a kid. So so you have the great fortune of having tremendous, um, both hilarious, painful experiences yeah. that you have the talent to put down and write down. And then somehow... What I just have to say about experiencing you, and I hope you'll come back when you're not in a show and we have more time because I don't want to keep you from doing what you need to do. Most people don't have bladder cancer at 19 and (laughs) most people, you know, don't have a sleeping disorder. Yeah. Um, Some do. It's why it's so it it resonates because enough people have heard of it or or. Sure. Have sleeping issues, just not as dramatic. But I just have to say, Mike, that like your ability to. um. I would dare say that even if you are not interested in having children ever, for real, um, or marriage or any of the things that you've struggled with in your own deciding process, decision-making process, it's so beyond what you're talking about. It it resonates on so many levels beyond the obvious, literal, this is a man who didn't want to have a kid and now he has a kid. And that's what's so incredible about being in your audience, that you could be, you're so relatable. Thanks. It's just uh, such a unique gift. Well, part of it is like I have to give credit to Seth Barish, who's my director mm-hmm. and dramaturg, and, and Ira Glass, my producer. Seth and I always talk about like what what is the show about for people who would never want to have a kid, mm-hmm. don't have a kid, couldn't care less about having a kid. And I think that what the show is about is resistance to change and fear. And so like... Here's this guy who happens to be me who, who who's all of us fierce, yeah, who's all of us yeah who fiercely doesn't want to do these things to the point where he lays out this elaborate argument for why you should no one should ever want to do these things, and then at the end, he does the thing, and the journey from here to there is hopefully something that makes people feel like they're they're seen. They the are, stories they, you know, they, they themselves are that we end up seeing on stage were those the ones that were easy to write or are they all equal struggle and equal joy or they're the hardest one like <laughs> without giving it away is like the red light district story mm-hmm. is the hardest one to put on stage mm-hmm. and, the, and particularly like hard to put like in front of my parents for mm-hmm. God's sakes but I and, and even like things that you know, there's a few reviews. The, the I, we've been very fortunate with reviews, but but like where there was like a review or two where people take issue with certain things that I say that are like very uh, edgy about how I've felt about the idea of being a parent. They're they're very like, wait, you're saying you can't say that. You're not allowed to say that. Mm-hmm. You know, and. Those are hard. Those are hard mm-hmm. to say mm-hmm. because they're things that you're. They're the deep dark thoughts 
that you don't want to say, but that I think theater is about. And so I have to insist on saying them, even if people are going to criticize me and say, you can't have that deep, dark thought. I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, that's why I go to the theater. Yeah. I go to the theater to hear the things that no one like will say. And I don't know. It's weird because I'm, because I'm an autobiographical solo performer, I think I'm held to a different standard than when people see a play based on fictional characters. Right. So, like, my favorite play in the last couple of years was Yerma, which was at the Armory, and it was uh, it was about these two characters struggling with fertility. This uh, wife and husband that are really struggling to to have a child. And they say these things to each other that are so wicked and mm-hmm. wild. And like, and the audience, I mean, there's a major catharsis in the audience is hearing these characters say these things that are like, you can't say that. Listen, when Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was first on stage, people couldn't believe that a playwright would write a husband and wife talking to each other that yeah. way. I mean, every every decade there's some play that people are like, that is verboten and how would anyone... Write that down, say it out loud, and have us watch it. Yeah, and then, like, so I've... That's been a difficult thing with performing this show is... There's been an outpouring of people who feel a catharsis from it, but then there's also, like, a few people who are mostly outliers who are just like, no, that's too far. Mm. You went one step too far. And that's their experience. I can't take that away from them. I'm not for them. Right. This, what I did is not for you. And I, I guess it's not a fit. I guess you won't be at the next show. Right. But like that's I it's definitely what me and my director are going for. Well, it sounds like you can live with that. I think I can live you with can that. You can live with that. Yeah, yeah. Are you gonna film the new one for people who don't have the luxury of being in New York City? Will th- they get to see it I think, on their television? I think we will film it. I don't think it'll I think we're gonna tour it, so I don't think it'll be available for a couple of years. Um, but ev- I think eventually people will be able to see it. Well, I just want to say the pleasure of watching all of your comedy specials on television and people can listen to your comedy and all your comedy albums and read your books and see your movies. I discovered you later in life. I feel so lucky that oh, I'm just gosh. discovering you because I get to go back and watch all these things and experience them for the first time. Wow. Um, I feel the same way about the podcast. Well, like you, you, br- you broke... Michael Ian Black, and now I'm like, who else did you break? Well, there are many. There <laughs> did are many you break people Mike, that Matthew <laughs> Broderick too? <laughs> Matthew Broderick is huddled in a corner, is he? crying. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I like to think. I like to think that I break them and then I bring them back. Yeah, better than no, they were breaking, before. Breaking the best that you can. <laughs> uh, Mike, thank you for being on Little Known Facts, thank and you I really so much. mean it. You, I really need you to come back, and I, I need seven more hours with you. I will return. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Have a great show tonight. Thank you so much. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So, there you go. These are little known facts that now you know. Thank you so much for listening. Do you know there are over 120 episodes of Little Known Facts with Alana Levine at this point? So, if you love this one, but you're a new listener, go back to the beginning and catch up. I promise you every episode will shed a light on an artist that inspires you in a whole new way. 
It is such a pleasure to make this podcast for you, and I hope if you love listening as much as I love making it, that you'll head over to my website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. There's a donation page, and truly, any donation, large or small, makes such a huge impact on my being able to make over a 100 more episodes for you guys, so I really, really appreciate it. I record this podcast at the Hangar Studios in New York City. If you ever are interested in making your own podcast or any kind of recording, go to thehangerstudios.com and get more information on how they make the magic happen. Thanks for listening.